You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Day and night must scramble for a living, feed the wife and children, send his daily press Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, we got a lot of people calling in today, but you can try 844 844- 999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. Or you can always email the show at letstalktorah at gmail.com. Very special guest today from very far away, but it seems Israel is my place where many people like to call me from. Um, we're going to be joined by a woman named Batya Rudel. She's written numerous books. Her most recent book is called On Their Derech. I just give you a little, a little heads up about what the conversation will be. Um, there's a a phrase used. We call them uh, teens at risk. Um, it's basically children or teenagers that uh, are rebelling against their parents, which is not, you know, abnormal. Obviously, a lot of teenagers uh, don't like what their parents uh, make rules for them and stuff. But in in Orthodox circles. This could be painful because these children don't want the religion that their parents taught them, which is not much different than if parents told their children to be secular and the children wanted to be religious. But uh, in religious circles, it becomes very painful, and it's a it's a it's an issue. And Batrudel has written a book, um, not so much how to how to change the children, but I think how to change us how we have to learn to work with our children. A very fascinating lady. It's called OTD is the phrase people use. Um, it's uh, OTD on there, or I'm sorry. Um, most people use it as off the, D stands for derech, but you would say path. Um, she's changed that. She's sort of turned it around, and she calls it on their derech, meaning these children have their path in life, and we have to let them live, and uh, we're going to talk to you about it. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, we got to talk about a lot of things happening this week. Torah portion talks about the sabbatical year. We'll see if we can get into that, about the Jubilee year. And um, we will be joined again um, by Rabbi Yonason Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. We haven't spoken in, I would say, numerous weeks. I think he forgets, I forget, holidays, parties, I don't know, but... We are definitely looking forward to speaking to Rabbi Yonas and Goldton again. And, uh, but first things first, we really need to talk about today on the Jewish calendar. Today is really a fascinating day. It is called Lag Ba'omer. You go online, check out Israel, you'll see bonfires, you'll see a million people um, somehow getting bust in. Well, it's, by this time of the day, they've already on the way out. And a mountain or a city called Mehron, there is a famous rabbi who is buried there. And it's the, there's all kinds of holy stuff involved in there. But let's, let's take it all slow and see if we can figure out how to put it together. So the second day of Passover... There was a sacrifice that was brought. The sacrifice was a barley sacrifice. It was the, it was the first um, 
new wheat, or new grain, I'm sorry, it's because barley. It's the first new grain that was brought um, as a sacrifice from the new crop. And uh, from that day, we count 49 days. And day 50 is the holiday of Shavuot, the holiday that we receive the Torah. That's where the word Omer comes from. Omer is a, is a dry, biblical measurement. It happens to be that during this time frame, the great Rabbi Akiva, um, there was a plague, and he had 24,000 students, and they died within this 49-day period, a terrible tragedy. These were supposed to be the leaders that would disseminate Torah to the Jewish people, and they died over this very short period of time. Because of that, um, this period of time is considered a mourning period. People won't make weddings. People won't take haircuts. People won't listen to music. And again, it's you see in the Talmud, it's really it's 33 days out of the 49. Whether it's the first 33, whether it starts uh, two weeks later, that's debatable. But uh, there's 33 days. Lag is a lamin and a gimel. Gimel, by the way, we'll see later is our word of the, is our letter of the week. Um, so the numerical value of lamin, which is 30, and gimel is three. So that's called lag. That's what we call it. That's the 33rd day of the counting. No one died on this day. Therefore, this day became a special day. That's one part of today. The second happening was, this is the, um, the yard site, the anniversary of the death of the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was one of the five students of Rabbi Akiva after he lost his 24,000 students. He didn't give up. He didn't throw in the towel. He got a, a new set of students, but not so many this time. He had five students, and those five students would now, the, the Torah would continue through them. So one of those students was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, he's famous for numerous things. One of the things he's most famous for is he had to hide in a cave with his son, uh, for 12 years. What happened was there was a conversation between Rabbi Judah and Rabbi Shemba Yechai and I believe Rabbi Yaisi, and they were discussing that the Romans were building, was it good or no good? So Rabbi Judah said, very good, we benefit, roads, markets, all very good. Rabbi Shemba Yechai said, it's not for us. They're not doing us any favors. Everything they do is for themselves. You shouldn't think they're doing it for us. The other rabbi really said nothing. So when the Romans heard that this great rabbi was uh, not so happy with uh, their buildings, they went after him, and there is a, uh, I guess, a, um, a, uh, a, a uh, what do you call it, a note, not a note, but there was a price on his head is what I was looking for. There was a price on his head. They were looking to kill him. So first he went to hide in his house. He realized that wasn't going to work, so he and his son escaped uh, somewhere in Israel to a, like, a, a cave, and there was a, a pool of water, and there was a, a carob tree growing there. And he and his son lived in that hidden area for 12 years. Uh, the Talmud says they actually buried themselves in the sand every day because their clothes wouldn't last all the years they knew they were going to be there. And all they did was study Torah. And they became massively holy because they, they didn't even deal with the world. They dealt with just two rabbis sitting and studying all day long. So much so, when a heavenly voice said, okay, you guys can leave, the, the decree was annulled, they go out and they wanted to kill them, or they did kill them, they looked at them, who knows what they did. Um, so God says, I don't need you to destroy my world, go back to the cave, 
you need a year to get back to normal. That was they they were on another come out a year later and they were ready to to deal with the world. Or the world could deal with them in, in any case. So this was this great Rishimar Yechoi, and he actually the Zohar. You've heard of Kabbalah. We talked about it on a show, I don't know, probably last summer. That you've heard of the Kabbalah centers. That is, I would say has nothing to do with Rishimar Yechoi. But he, he, this was a great holy man who created the, the, the facet of Torah called Kabbalah which only the greatest scholars now, for the most part, nobody studies it. The stuff out in California, whatever they do, is all fake. Don't, don't get involved in that. You want more information, you, uh, you, t- you email me. I'll let you know all about it or look it up online. But um, that real Kabbalah, that real Zohar, that real holy stuff that they talk about, that all comes from this Abshim Bar-Yechoi. So on the anniversary of his death, that's considered a special day. Sometimes we think it should be a sad day. It's actually considered a special day. His his soul um, will go even higher than it was the year before. Fire is symbolic of Kabbalah and Zohar and stuff like that. So, um, and a lot of the stuff that he gave us is not, in other words, in the Torah, there's basically your straight black and white, for the most part, commands. Then you have other stuff. For example, people have a custom, they don't give their boys a haircut till they're three years old. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Torah. That's what we call Kabbalah. There's different types of holy things that people will do, and that all comes from him. So there's all kinds of, we'll call it parties for lack of a, a better phrase. They will celebrate, they will dance, they will sing, they'll have meals, they'll, uh, they'll party. Schools have always taken the day of Lagba Omer to sort of be an off day. Now, we don't leave the children home, but it's a day where we go out into the fields, we go to the parks. Today we were afraid of rain, and the end it didn't rain, so we went to the park, and I did with my class what my third grade teacher did when I was little. We play baseball. Now, I gotta tell you, for those of you who have children, they're athletic, this is not the kind of baseball game for you. Um, all wonderful children, I have 25 students this year, um, but most of them barely know how to hold a baseball bat. I mean, I guess it was comical. You know, boy comes up, he's holding the bat wrong. I say, have your shoulder facing me. He turns his back shoulder instead of his front shoulder. He turns around, he's standing on the base. So one of the things I do, it's really for my class, it's there as third graders, it's there, this is when I start to teach them how to play baseball. I'll draw a line, I'll show them how to stand, I'll show them how to hold their hands, I'll... I'll try to show them how to hold the bat. It doesn't always work. Um, we play with a t-ball. I like uh, lady softball, actually, but first of all, this class, I'm not sure if they're strong enough. Uh, I mean, a real softball would never work for them. They're just not strong enough. But they're all, they have their gloves, and they're in the field, and they'll hit the ball, and it'll bounce, and somebody will pick it up, and they'll throw it over the first baseman's head, and the kid will run to second base. He doesn't know when to run, how to run, who to run, what to run. But uh, slowly but surely, we figure it out. We explain to me what to do. I won't throw the ball to the first baseman if it comes to me. I will roll it to the first baseman. And if he manages to pick the ball up, he'll get the guy out. If it goes right past him, okay, it goes right past him. A few of them surprise you. A few of them actually can swing. One of my littlest guys, he had such a sweet swing. The first time he hit the ball, my mouth dropped. Like, it went past second base. It was fantastic. And the guys who in their life never hit a ball, they, you, you know, you make them choke way up, so they're just trying to tap it. You tap it, and it goes. 
So we had a great time. Play for about an hour and a half, come back to school, and we have a barbecue lunch, and then we have some more time outside, and, and we had these uh, bouncy slides and stuff. It was really a fun day. Um, I'm not exactly sure what baseball or bouncy things or, or any other trips we take them on exactly has to do with the great Reb Shem Bar Yechai or the fact that the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying on this day. But it's something that school students, teachers have been doing forever. So if we've been doing it forever, we keep on doing it forever. But it was really a great day. We had a great time. It happened to be it was cloudy. So even though we thought it was going to rain and I didn't bring my stuff, I didn't have a hat and I had to get a water bottle and I didn't have a glove, but um, it worked fine. It was very good. Went to the park. Not too many puddles after this morning's uh, thunderstorm. We had a really, really good time. Okay. That's Lag Boimer. And in my few minutes left, let's just talk quickly. This week's Torah portion talks about the sabbatical year. The sabbatical year works like this. In the Jewish, we'll call it calendar, the years work on a seven-year cycle. We're not going to get into it. Different uh, tithing has to be done, given to different people during the first six years. The seventh year in Israel, all the fields have to lay fallow. You cannot do anything. No planting, no no plowing, no fertilizing. The fields are left alone. Again, if, if the field will get destroyed... You can keep it so it won't get destroyed. But we're not planting stuff. We're not going to harvest stuff. The fields are actually considered ownerless. It doesn't mean I can, uh, you know, claim a stake and say this is my field. It just means that people can come into the field if there's something growing and they can take it. That's basically the gist of what is happening during Shemitah, during the sabbatical year in the land of Israel, the land lays fallow. So you have to think about this. I mean, this is the farmer's life. No food, no planting, no food, you starve, you die. Very simple. So the farmer needs to have a—I mean, the Torah is forcing, really, the farmer to show a tremendous level of belief in God. God says, if you're going to keep the sabbatical year, don't worry. In the sixth year, you'll grow double. You're not going to listen to me. Then the sixth year will be the same as uh, any other year, and so your seventh year. So in the 50s, I believe in the 50s, there was a Moshav, it was a farm, one of these farm communes, I guess you would call it a kibbutz maybe, called Kaimimiyus in Israel. And in those days, most of the farms, they were all owned really by the government, but most of the farms were not religious. I, I don't want to say they were anti-religious, but many of them probably were. And they, um, they didn't keep the sabbatical year. But this one farm commune did. It was a religious, um, either Moshav or kibbutz. And um, what happened was, the Israeli government said to them, listen here, you are going to plant in the seventh year. We don't give you farmland for nothing. You don't get to just take a year off. So they said, oh, come on. Torah says we're not allowed. They said, we, we can't let. There has to be a certain amount of food produced every year. We, we need it for the economy. So the leaders of this Kamiya said to the government, they said, look, you keep records every year of what every farm grows. Why don't you watch what happens to us in the sixth year, and you'll see if we're right or if we're wrong. Well, um, let's use the number 600 for argument's sake. Let's say the average farm of that size in that area produced 600, I don't care if you call it metric tons, I don't care if you call it boxes or bags, I don't care. 600 was the number produced every year. All the farms, 590, 610, give or take, 20, 30, 40, depending on the year. 
Um, all of a sudden, in the sixth year, and this is documented because they keep all these records. So um, all of a sudden, that last in the sixth year of the cycle, this Kayumiyas, um they grew twelve hundred. 1190, 1210, something in that range. I don't remember the exact number. And all the other farms in the area created 600. So they went back and said, see, we told you, we're supposed to have 600 a year. If we're going to take off the seventh year, God said you're going to get it in the sixth year. And therefore, they were able to continue. There's numerous other miraculous events. They got rain while they didn't get rain. They weren't attacked by locusts when others were attacked by locusts. This is something... Um, that's that's uh, it's in the records. All you gotta do is open up. I mean, uh, like all good governments, especially uh, a socialist type government, like they were in those days, even though they don't like that word. Um, they uh, their records are all there. So it's clear that because they had planned on keeping the sabbatical year, it was gonna everything was gonna work out perfect, and that's what happened. So that's the sabbatical year. Those that keep the sabbatical year, so God promises them everything will be fine and wonderful, and and they'll grow what they need. And uh, nowadays, it happens to be there's like a rebirth over the last 15, 20 years. Numerous, numerous farms are taking care of keeping Shemitah, and it's like going back to their roots. It's really quite fascinating. So I'm just about up to my break. So I, again, am reminding you, when we come back, we're going to be joined by Bati Rudel, author of On Their Derech. So please hold through the break, and we will be right back. I'll tell you what happened. Good day, Morty. I got the Zetron sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. No, I'm not back. Yeah. No, I'm commercial. Are we good? Yeah, we're on commercial. Yeah. Yeah, she's. Yeah, yeah. Are we good? We're good? Yes. Okay. And the experts say the right, same so is probably guess. true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. 
And as promised, we are joined by Bat Rudel, columnist for the Hamodian Bina magazine, a prolific writer. That's a good word. And now her most recent book, which started out as a 12-weekly week column on OTD, author of Honor Derek. Batya, how are you today? Baruch Hashem, thank you. I'm very good. Although we're very hot, we're very hot over here in Eretz Israel. How hot? Very hot. It's like it's oh, it's 110 degrees up north. Oh, that's really hot. Because we, this is our yes. like first warm day, and it's barely in the high 70s. For us, that's like hot. Oh, ah, okay. I yes. hope you have air conditioning. Baruch Hashem. Yes. Okay. Good. Baruch Hashem for that. So I gave everybody a little bit of a heads up. We talked about OTD, just a little bit for some of the phrases so people will be familiar. But before we start, who is Batya Rudel? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> who's about, who is Batya Rudel? Um, oh, you needed to give me the heads up on this one. Oh, okay, I'm going to so help you. So I am... Um, I'm a ballast tuber, which for those of you who are not familiar with the terminology, I'm not quite sure Probably which they're audience not. I'm speaking to. Um, so that means that I didn't grow up in a religious home. Uh, I grew up in a completely secular home, and I came to Yiddishkeit by myself, with Hashem's help, obviously, when I was in my 20s. And um, that took place here in Eretz Israel, and I then got married here had my family here, my children are all born here, and I worked as a neonatal intensive care nurse for a couple of decades, um, on and off, obviously, not all the time, because I had my children, um, And um, but I always wanted to write. I'd always, since being a child, I'd always wanted to write. I wanted to be a journalist, and... Well, Hashem, I didn't get accepted for journalism school, so I became a nurse instead. And then, um, then uh, mid-life time, so I changed my career completely after I had um, my own personal experience with personal illness, and then I, I didn't want to go back into the medical field again. And I was writing a lot, and so then my writing career just kind of took off after that. Okay, so, now yeah. we have a feeling for who Batya is. Thank you very much. Excellent. So let's just get a few phrases out, because I know you have a very good way of putting them. Um, there is a phrase used, and we talked about this more in religious circles, in orthodox circles. They call it OTD, or children in pain, or we call it off the derech, which literally is off the path. Could you just explain, because you're much more of an expert than I am, could you just quickly explain what does that mean? Okay, so within the within the orthodox uh, circles, um, there is an expression called um, off the derech. Derech means the path, and derech is the Hebrew word for that. So there is a certain expression called OTD, which means that if someone says, oh, he's, he's off the derech, which, that means that he, he or she is not following in his, his family's footsteps. And it's not been such a kind term. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not been the most flattering of, of terms. And so I actually changed that uh, terminology and I took the OTD um, 
letters and I changed it to on their derech, which means that on their path, which means that every child is on his or her unique journey. So why did you think it was important to, and I, I love that phrase, by the way, but why did you think it was important to, to change the, we'll say, terminology? Um, because the on off the derech um, implies that there's only one path, there's only one way, um, and that's not true. There are many ways to connect Hashem. There are many ways to to feel close to Hashem, um, but it's kind of all been lumped together as one thing. And I I truly believe, and this is based on my own personal experience with my own children, I, I believe that every child has his or her unique journey in this world, and he has his own process um, of, you know, get, of how he gets close to God or doesn't. Uh, uh, well, I don't mean doesn't, but how he, he has his own he has his own journey, has his own process, and that's why um, I don't believe there's such a thing as on off the derech. Um, because that Im- that implies, like I said, that there's only one way. Okay, excellent. Well, well said. That's exactly what I wanted you to tell me. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes we just have to change the way people think, and that'll uh, affect some of the other things I hope we're going to get to, because uh, the book, again, on the Derek, the conversation continues by Bachi Rudell, um, talks all about uh, what we're going to be discussing as we move along. So let me ask like this, Bacha. Um, whenever somebody says this phrase, their child is OTD, or they see them walking down the street, parents of these children get very, very nervous. Sometimes they just shut down. Uh, Why do you think that parents of these children take this so hard and uh, and they're so embarrassed of of this type of child, which is maybe not the nicest way to say it? Are you talking about the parents of the child who's on his derrick? Yes, exactly. Yes, okay. Okay, so, um, so there, there, you know, it's, it's complex. There's a lot, a lot of reasons, but um, when you grow up in a very polarized society where everybody is expected to live the same way and do everything, this, you know, the same, when somebody stands out as looking different, um, then... Um, you know, they're, 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 they feel like they're being judged, and they are often, they are being judged by other members of society because there's, a, there's an, insular, is an insularism which has been created which makes people very frightened to allow themselves to think about other, other possibilities and other ways. And I think that it, within our world, we spend a lot of time trying to protect our children from exposure to other things. Um, and so what happens is, is that the parents end up feeling that they failed in some way. Um, I, in my book, I write about the fact that um, we have a lot of challenges in our lives. Um, and unfortunately, it feels to me like there's a kind of hierarchy of challenges which we've created, which we've developed, which so that if you, God forbid, have lost your husband to a terror attack or your child is sick with cancer, then, then you're, right, you're right up there on the top of the totem pole. And everybody's coming to you and everyone's supporting you and, 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 and giving you, sending in meals and taking care of your children. Um, 
But the lower down you go to the less desirable challenges, those are the challenges which people tend to uh, think that somebody's caused. So on the one hand, you're right, up, you're right up at the top there, the top of the ladder. So having done nothing whatsoever, you've not, you've not actually achieved, you, you, you haven't done anything to achieve that status. You've certain, it's just that circumstances have happened to you in your life. But then as you go down the ladder, people you know, are saying, well, you know, what kind of family are they? They must have caused this, whether it's divorce, whether it's abuse, whether it's children on their derech. So parents who are struggling with their kids, and that struggle is, is, is tremendous, the, the pain that's involved with um, just having a child in, in, in pain the way they are, that is a, a huge, huge, huge challenge. And in a, but in addition to that challenge, they have to feel that they're being judged, that they're being blamed, that they're being stigmatized. And if the parents themselves are not strong enough, they will absorb that. You know, it really takes a lot of strength to be able to just hold your head up high and say, you know, I love my child and I, and I believe in my child and I really don't care what anyone else thinks. Yeah, and that has to be the hardest thing, because you're right. We, we are, unfortunately, busy judging everybody else's. We judge the house they build, the car they drive, mm-hmm. the schools their mm-hmm. children go to. And sometimes I wonder if their child is not, we'll say, towing the straight and narrow. So now I get to judge them again. And unfortunately, maybe that judging allows me to sort of you know, build myself up to say, oh, I must be better because look at what kind of child they raised. Do you ever find that? Right. Um, yes. So, so the thing about that is that um, the thing, what, what, keeps, what keeps me going is that I remember that um, the definition of success is not something we can really understand in this world. Like, we, do, we don't really know what the true definition of success is. Only, only Hashem knows that. So yes, there are plenty of people who walk around um, thinking that they've been successful because their children have turned out well in, in, in you know, inverted commas, um, according to their standards, um, and and therefore they they are considered to be successful. But actually, um, I think we're going to be surprised to find out what success really is. And sometimes people are just given very challenging children. And Hashem has chosen those parents for that mission. And there are other parents who have not been chosen for that mission. Maybe they have another challenge they've been chosen for. But the outcome of anything has got nothing to do with with, how my children turn out. has got nothing to do with me. The hishtadlis that I put in, the effort I make is... Is, def- is what I get my reward for or what I get my punishment for, depending on whether I've done enough of it. But the actually end result is nothing to do with me. And that means that if your child turns out well, that's nothing to do with you either. So that's just something I think that's really important to remember, that it's all, everything, every outcome is completely 
determined by Hashem. Right, that is really an amazing thought, and I think important for all parents to look at. And it was to recognize, you know, my wife says this all the time, and I was, I'm not impressed if a teacher takes care of my A student. What do you do when you have my failing <laughs> student? Can you help that one? Mm-hmm. So, Bacha, mm-hmm. I'm just about up to a break. So we, we take about a two-minute break. Can you hold through the break with us? Uh, yeah. Perfect. So we're up to break. You're listening to Batrudel. So much information, so little time. We're going to do the best we could. So please hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tsuya and Let's Talk Torah. And we're going to be right back. I'll tell you what happened. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Surfing the internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision making and complex Okay, we're back. And my music didn't play so long, but we're back with Bat Yudel, author of On the Derek. Bat, are you still with me? I'm still here. Thank you so much. So I, as I have even less time now, we, I wanted to touch on a few things with you. Um, you refer to these children as children in pain. What does that mean, children in pain? So... Um, I have a theory which is supported by many professionals that when a, if a child grows up in a, um, a loving home with two stable parents and that they've had a very positive exposure to religion, to Yiddishkeit, um, that, they, that they wouldn't choose to leave it unless something has happened to them. And that means that they could have gone through a very... A traumatic experience somewhere along the line and that could have been through in, in the schools, in the yeshivas, 
it could have been something at home. Um, it could have, God forbid, been some abuse. But um, usually when a child acts out, then it's an expression of his pain, his or her pain, and it means that they're in pain. Um, and um, it's very important to be able to relate to them in that way uh, because when you can see your child as being in pain and that they're suffering, then you'll have empathy for them instead of getting angry at them and judging them. And it's important for people around to be aware of that. I mean, they could see a child, uh, a teenager on the street, um, dressed in, you know, a terrible way, behaving badly, and they could, and yet they have no idea what that child or those children have been through. And, you know, really no no idea at all. So it's very important to, to keep that in mind. Yes, yeah, so, you know, I've always wondered... Um, and again, because these, these children will come from all different kinds of families. It's not like uh, somebody's figured out a formula to make sure that they're, uh, mm-hmm. that they're protected. Have, and maybe this is what you meant. Have you ever wondered if God put a different kind of soul in these children and that soul cannot, you know, toe the straight and narrow? Oh, I, I, I definitely think they have different types of souls. And... And I wouldn't call it towing the straight and narrow because. Um, Good. I'm using the wrong narrow, phrase. Good. Correct me. Thank that, you. That, that straight and narrow is is not necessarily. Um, you know, we've created we've created a society. We've created a societal norm, um, and that societal norm is is that you know you follow steps A, B, C, D, E, and so on. And you just keep going from step to step to step in your life. And we've created a certain societal norm where we avoid pain, we avoid, we avoid difficulty. And I'm, I'm not criticizing that because I think that we have good reason after everything we've been through as a nation. But um, these kind of souls um, are usually much deeper. They're very sensitive. In fact, most people you talk to will always describe that they're kids who are struggling were always much more sensitive, um, much deeper, um, and in many ways they're actually more honest. Um, they see things around them that they too much for them to, to, to deal with, and they can't cope with it. Um, I know that my children were definitely way too, way too sensitive for the system, for example. They, just, they were just way too sensitive for that. Um, and in my book, I have an article um, by Rabbi Uri Zohar where he actually talks about these special souls that we, ha- that we have now in the times, you know, coming up to Mashiach and, uh, and how these souls get redeemed. And, but that's something, you know, to read in the book. It's too deep to go into. Right, right. Interview. Yes. I, I was actually ready to open the book to the right page, but no, I'm not going to do that now. Um, <laughs> So, so now that we understand that, 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 that and, and I'm glad you corrected me, that 
the problem is that we've created a straight and narrow when we mm-hmm. shouldn't have. We've created right. an educational system, and I think you talk about it in the book somewhere, probably in numerous places, where you know we've 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 risen from the ashes after what happened during the Holocaust, and we've built up our schools and our studying right. and our and how religious uh, you know so many people are and and how good they are, and you know it was and it was important and we did it well and we created mm-hmm. a box. And I think one mm-hmm. of the things you're trying to show people is that that we don't all fit, right? Those those round right. pegs are not fitting into square, right. whatever. I probably right. back with square pegs into round holes. However, it's going to be. So let me right. ask you like this. Right. So now, once we can understand that there's different children and they don't all fit into our regular educational system and they're deeper and things bother them that don't bother others. Or maybe they've gone through some type of trauma. Um, So I think everything starts with children talking to parents and parents understanding their children. How do parents do that? So, obviously, um, the closer children are to their parents, and the more of an open relationship they can have with them, the better. Um, and that's something which is created from a very young age. Um, so the parents, for example, shouldn't be frightened of kids when they're even young asking questions about God and God's existence. And if they don't know how to answer those questions, they should find somebody who does know how to answer them and not just squash the kids down and tell them, you know, you're not allowed to ask such things. But in all in all fairness, no matter how close parents are with their children, if a child goes through something traumatic, and I use the example, unfortunately, of, of some kind of abuse, no matter how much you tell your child that um, they should come and tell you if something happens to them, the kids don't do it because they're too ashamed and they're too embarrassed. So they don't, they don't come and share it. And what happens usually is that when they reach puberty, if this is something that's happened when they're young, when they reach puberty, then they start to um, express certain behavior, which looks like, on the, on the surface, it looks like they're, they're showing a displeasure towards Yiddishkeit, you know, with girls, they'll change the way they dress. Um, the boys will stop davening, um, they change their social groups, they start exhibiting risky behavior. And the parents, you know, often respond, they react towards that. So then you end up having, they end up having this conflict, this fight about Yiddishkeit things, um, when the real reason for this behavior is, is some trauma or something that they've experienced which they've not told anyone. Now, um, in a case where, for example, the parents have had a basically good relationship with their child and the child suddenly changes when they hit their teenage years, so yes, that child may engage in some extremely risky behavior, um, but if that relationship with the child is good, then they will hopefully be able to help and support them through that journey and and the chances of that child having some kind of having recovery and recovering is much higher than parents who don't have a good relationship with their child. 
Yeah, but not every. So yeah, this I I think parents wanna wanna understand. Sometimes I want to tell my child what's right, what's wrong. Children are always challenging parents. That's part of being mm-hmm. a teenager. Mm-hmm. So right. do I have to say, well, I can't discipline my child because maybe he's going off the derech, or maybe as soon as he does something that uh, he's changing his uh, social groups, changing how they're, how they're dressing, I immediately have to get help because maybe he's been abused, uh, uh, you know, is this is this a, a quandary for parents? Like, what are they supposed to do? Okay, so if you if your you know child is expressing um, signs of difficulty and struggle, all you can really do is just be there for them and let them know that you're there for them to talk to if they want it. Um, uh, you know, every every relationship is different with every with every, every child and every family. It's it's different. Um, I think maybe you might be referring to the twisted parenting approach, which is you know unconditional love and just you know total unconditional love. That approach is is for children who are in a very 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 uh, uh, bad situation. Avi Fischoff only accepts um, families who meet a certain, fit a certain criteria. So it's not a substitute for regular chinuch. So obviously, in a regular situation, um, when you see your child, maybe, maybe you know, they, they, they want to act out a little bit or whatever. It doesn't mean you, it doesn't mean you have to freak out over it. So, you know, sometimes I, I believe personally that we have to let our children form their own relationship with Hashem instead of keep instead of trying to tell them how to do it. Um, and and let them come to it, which means that we don't have to get so nervous if we see that our child is uh, is is disillusioned a little bit. It's okay. I mean if they stop engaging in very risky behavior then that is definitely cause to worry. That's cause for concern. Okay, you've you've explained so much in such a short amount of time. It's unbelievable. Um, we've been talking to Bat Yudel, her new book on the Derek Batcha. I, I leave you with two questions: How can someone get your book, and what would you like to leave us with? Um, so my book is um, available in most of the Jewish bookstores. Um, but it, you can also buy it online through Amazon or through Israel Bookshop Publications. And what would I, what would I like to leave you with? Um, so I think um, I'll, I, I, I'll... Okay, so I, I, I spoke recently, I was in Connecticut, and I spoke at the Shabbat Homer, and one of the things that I told the parents is that... Um, this challenge, the challenge that we have today with our children, which it's, we've always had this challenge, but today in these times, for some reason, uh, it seems to be very out there and there's also a lot more available for the kids to get into trouble with. Um, so I believe that there's no other challenge um, that requires us to change ourselves and to grow and to look at ourselves and to find things within ourselves that we never knew we had inside of us. There's no other challenge that requires that of us than, the, than this one, which is um, our children on their derech. 
Uh, we all have our struggles, you know, panosa, health, uh, all, all matter of things. But this one um, is, I, I see, I've seen people, I've seen parents who have done a whole about turn, completely, completely found things within themselves, so against everything that they've ever thought of and known in order to love their struggling child. And, and those attributes, are, are the attributes that Hashem has. So Hashem's attributes of compassion and unconditional love and understanding and forgiveness, these attributes are, are Hashem's attributes. So actually, we become more godlike um, through our struggling children. So actually, that is a gift. Natya, you said that, everything yeah. I could have asked you for. I appreciate your time. I'm sure we'll be in touch again. Um, my music is now playing, so I'm up against the break. So, Batya, again, thank you very much. Her book is on the Derek. You can get it online. And you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah, and we're going to be right back. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic, sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on NewRadioMedia.com, Fridays, Podquesters. See you there. Times we see a guy running down to first base, and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. Umped. I mean, that's <laughs> get umped. <laughs> I can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. Yeah, what's up? This is your boy Walter Jones, also known as Zach, the original Black Ranger, and you are geeking out with Geek Tainment Weekly at New Radio Media. It's worth the time. The Bee Gees song, Staying Alive, just might help someone you know stay alive. It's one of those beats you just can't get out of your head once it's there. And it turns out the disco song has 103 beats per minute, which happens to be the perfect number to maintain the rhythm for performing CPR. A study out of Illinois found that doctors and medical students who listened to the song while they were practicing CPR not only performed flawlessly, but they also remembered the technique five weeks later. The keys to CPR are performing the technique aggressively, that is pushing hard enough and pushing on the chest fast enough to force the blood to where it needs to go. So when it comes to proper technique, it turns out that compressing the chest to the beat of staying alive really can help the victim stay alive. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And after a very long hiatus, we are now joined again by my friend, Rabbi Yonison Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. Yonison, how are you today? I am very well. It's good to be back again. It is good to have you. So you know how it goes. The clock is ticking. Go for it. Okay. Well, we know that today is Lagba Aymer, the 33rd day of the count between Passover and Shavuos. And uh, it celebrates, among other things, the ascension to heaven, the art site, Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, who was a fascinating character in history. 
one of the things the sages tell us, <clears throat> excuse me, is that Rabbi Shimba Yochai is one of two people in history that during his lifetime a rainbow was never seen in the world. Now, a rainbow is a fascinating phenomenon. We know that, that God put the rainbow in the sky to remind mankind of the covenant that he made with Noah after the flood, that he would never destroy the world again. So on the one hand, the rainbow is an ominous reminder that if not for that covenant, God was prepared to destroy us, that we've sunk to that low level. On the other hand, it's an object of extraordinary beauty, so that we want to stop and gaze at it when we see it. So it has these two different components that don't seem to fit together very well. But what we, if you look at the way a rainbow works, you have white light that is refracted through water and split into many colors. So you might say on the one hand that it's a symbol of disunity because the bands of color are no longer one. You don't have the pure bright, bright light. On the other hand, sometimes once we divide ourselves, once we identify our individual strengths, our individual colors, we find our unique attributes, then when we reunify, we come back together, we become stronger than we were before. And so in the generation of Rabbi Shimba Yochai, because of his influence, people recognized that when you look into the darkness and the confusion of our lives, and you look into the apparent chaos of the world, you can actually find your own inner strength. You can find the potential that lies within you to be a partner with every other member of the human race. And in that way, we forge ourselves together, we come together, we become stronger than we were, and we create a new, a new kind of unity that we didn't have before, We are where we're not merely the sum of our parts, but we're much stronger than the sum of our parts. When you look at the disunity in the world today, the headlines of bickering and fighting and dissension and chaos and terrorism, and uh, it's... It's a reminder of the human potential that we all have to make a positive contribution to find our unique strengths to figure out how we can work together with others to bring the light of unity into the world. Yanison, thank you as always, and hopefully we'll speak next week. God willing. Okay, have a good Shabbos. Be well. Okay. Amazing as always. And now we're ready for our next poster, and I have the thumbs up. We're up to our third poster in the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Gimel, an interesting shape. I'm not sure how to describe it, so you'll just have to look at the picture right behind me. The, the numerical value of Gimel is three. So that's why I told you Lag is a Lamed and a Gimel as the second part of the number of 33, because that's today's counting the Omer, which we keep uh, bringing up. And my word this week is ger. A ger has numerous meanings. It could mean a convert. It could mean a stranger. It actually could mean to dwell also. But I wanted the translation of stranger today because that was really our whole conversation that we had with Batya, that people will look at a child that is not like them, that is not growing up the way they would like their children to grow up, and they consider the child a stranger. And that's the worst possible thing we can do to that child, to the family, or to anyone for that matter. As we can't treat them so they look a little different, they dress a little different, they talk a little different, they whatever they want to do, they're still Jewish. Or wherever you're coming from, the child is not exactly who you would want to be your child, but it's somebody's child. And the child needs to be respected. And if instead of treating the child like a stranger, we, tra- we, we treat the child as just another person who just has their path in life, life would be much better. 
And as my time is running up, I got to tell you a really quick story, except I think it's a long story. Let's see what happens. There was a, a man, he was called Chacham Rav Yehuda Tzadikah. And uh, he was uh, in Israel and he traveled, he did a lot of speaking, he tried to make people religious. And uh, he's taking a taxi late on Friday and he's going to some community where he will be staying for the Sabbath. And while he's traveling with a taxi driver, and they're all Jewish, uh, they hear the squawk over the radio, I need someone who can take a family to Load Airport. Airport uh, trip, and the taxi driver knows it's getting close to the Sabbath, it's not a good idea. And then he hears the, the, uh, the guy in the squawking say it's a $600, or $600 shekel, probably $150 fear. All of a sudden, the guy picks it up and he says, I'm in. Take me, I'll do it. And this, uh, this Rabbi Tzadikah is listening. He feels so bad. He says, come on, you can't take this ride. You know, it's going to be on Sabbath. He says, come on, it's a lot of money. What do you want me to do? So this Rabbi Tzadikah opens his wallet, pulls out 600 shkullim and said, here, here's the 600 shkullim you were going to lose. Don't take the fear. And the guy was so taken aback. The tax driver was so taken aback that another Jew could care about him so much that not to put him down, but to treat him like a person. You understand this is money. You understand what I'm feeling. And you're offering the money. The story doesn't say if the taxi driver offered or not, but the taxi driver said, fine, I'm not taking the family. What's interesting is, um, like 10 seconds later, a call came back, family canceled, the ride is not happening. Anyways, we've had a fantastic show. I hope you learned a lot, and it's really time to say goodbye. So again, thank you to our wonderful sponsor listeners. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to our wonderful production team. A lot of new people, a lot of new faces. Cole, St- uh, Stephanie, Kelsey, Zach, Angel, lots of people here. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk to our new radio media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.